Second Samuel chapter 18. You know, I'm not looking forward to getting out of this book. I'll be honest with you. This is one of my favorite places in the Scripture. has always been one of my favorite places in the Scripture. And I think the reason is, is just the amount of time it, it gives, more than any other king in the Bible of Judah's kings, more is spent about the life of David. And is it any wonder, really, because it was through David, if you go all the way back to Genesis, there's this wonderful theme that is going throughout the Bible, and it's the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption, that man was hopelessly lost, and God, before the foundation, it tells us in Revelation, I think it's 18, verse 3, or 3, verse 18, I'm a little dyslexic, but it says that, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That means that the plan of redemption had already begun before God says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before Genesis 1 verse 1, there was already a plan. And we see in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, singular, is none other than Jesus Christ. The seed of Mary, the seed of the woman, and then through that seed, through Adam and Eve, down through Noah, and then Noah, down through Abraham, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. One of them's name was Judah. And then Judah, he lives, and, uh, and then he has many children. And through the line of Judah would ultimately come David, and God in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 gives us, he, he, he gives to David the promise, the Davidic covenant, that from his that there would not cease a king to be on his throne, and that his throne would endure forever. And obviously we know that that, that that throne was cut off, of course, but it's speaking of what is yet to come in the millennial reign and beyond. Certainly Jesus will come back, and he will reign on the throne of Judah forever, along with all of us. And, so you, and, and then you see you know, from David, and then you go down through David's lineage, and you come to finally Jesus. And then from Jesus, after his death and his resurrection on the third day, he ascends to heaven. The Bible tells us that he's coming again for the church. That's the next thing we're looking for, is for the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, and then he comes back, and it's recorded for us in Genesis 19, verse 11, that he comes back to a physical earth to rule and to reign with us, coming back with him, to the earth for a thousand years. Yes, a thousand years on this physical earth that we're living on now, a thousand years. You don't have to worry about anything. God's got it covered. The sun is still going to be shining for at least another thousand seven years from now. Okay, And then at the end of that thousand year reign, a new heavens and a new earth, the eternal state where all of us believers will, will live with, uh, in, in peace, and that'll be the eternal state. And that's where we will be forever and ever. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? But that plan was always in motion, and that's why I believe that God spent so much time uh, on David's life and just showing us that it was through him and, and, and the struggles that he went through. And tonight we're going to be looking at this area in David's life where, could you bring that down just a little bit, John, just a smidgen? And, um, and so we see David now, after his sin with Bathsheba and after killing Uriah, David, you know, ultimately, um, you know, the Lord tells him that the sword would never depart from his house because of the result of his sin and not only that, but the, the sword would never depart. And so we're also seeing that. We, we've already looked at that. We, we've looked at you know, David's firstborn son, Amnon, how he loved his stepsister, uh, Tamar, who was actually Absalom, who was David's second son, or actually a third son, excuse me. He loved his sister, Tamar, so much that he ended up raping her. David, being in a... In his own, wrapped up in his own difficulties, he does nothing. He does nothing to Absalom for killing his firstborn son, Amnon. He does nothing. He hears about it, does nothing. And then, now, 
he finds out that Absalom is bringing an army against him from Hebron. Absalom, his third son, now comes with an army from Hebron and seeks to overthrow his father. So David and, and the royal family and anyone who would follow David, they leave Jerusalem. They leave the, the Temple Mount. And if you were to look at uh, if, if, if Jerusalem or the, the Temple is here, uh, actually the Temple wasn't in existence then, but Zion is where David was, and that's where the tabernacle was. They left that, and they went down the hill into the Kidron Valley, and then they continue going, and then they go up the other side, which is the uh, western side of the Mount of Olives, they go over the Mount of Olives and go down the slope, down into the Jordan Valley. They cross the Jordan. They ultimately go into on the eastern side of the Jordan River, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, somewhere equidistant between there on the eastern side. There's a town called Mahanaim, and that's where David flees to with the royal family and those, his servants, many servants. And so David flees, and we know that he's ridiculed on his way out. And Hushai, who was a good friend of David, he goes now back to Jerusalem, and David wants him to go back to kind of be his eyes and his ears, to be a spy, if you will, to let David know what's happening in Jerusalem, because Absalom is taking up residence on his throne. In fact, Absalom, at the, at the advice of Ahithophel, who was a, a, a wonderful um, counselor to David, Ahithophel gives Absalom this really bad advice. And he says, hey, you want to be king? Well, you better go through with it. Go in right on top of the, on the palace and take your father's ten concubines and we'll set up a tent up there and you go in and you be with them. And you know what I mean by that. Have intercourse with them and seal the deal. Because once that happens, then Absalom will have crossed the Rubicon. There's, no, there's, a, there's a point of no return now for his fate and what his intentions are. Are. And so he does that. And then we find out in chapter 17 that Ahithophel says, well, let me now choose uh, 12,000 men and go, and go after David while he's still fleeing because David and his people were still on their way down into the Jordan Valley. And Ahithophel's like, if we catch him right now, we can kill, uh, we, can, we can just, uh, just give me 12,000 men and I'll make sure that only David is killed, is basically what he's saying. We'll do a surgical hit. <laughs> We'll go after David. We'll leave everybody alone. We'll get him. And then Hushai, David's friend, comes to Absalom and he says, you know what, that's not a bad thing, but I think you ought to go for the whole thing. Don't show weakness. Show great strength and go after everybody. Kill them all and show yourself that you're a strong man and show yourself that you're the king who now reigns. And Absalom goes, mm, I like that idea better. And what, is, what happens is we see Ahithophel, once he, he a very proud man, his, his, his words were always like gold to Israel, a very proud man, a very smart man, full of wisdom. He realizes that Absalom is not going to take his counsel, which would have been the better thing, wouldn't it have been? I mean, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, you get one person versus Hushai's device or advice, which was to kill everybody, including David, it would be so much easier just to go after one. So his advice was good and bad. But Hushai says, you know what? Why don't you give it some time? Amass the army from Dan to Beersheba, get everybody together and overwhelm them and just desecrate everything and kill them all. And so Absalom, in his pride, he says, yes, that's what I'll do. And Ahithophel, being so wounded now in his pride, he goes back to his house and he kills himself. He hangs himself because his, his advice was scorned, perhaps for the first time in all of his history. And so that's what happens. But you may think to yourself, well, Hushai, that sounds like a really bad thing for him to do since he was the king's friend, but Hushai knew that if he gave David time, that's what he was, by giving that advice to the king, to Absalom, would give David a lot more time. And he knew David, and he knew David, with time on his hands, would develop a strategy, a military strategy, and he would gather all, a bunch of men to himself, and that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. In fact, uh, it tells us that, um, that while Hushai was in the palace... Uh, with Absalom, 
that Abs or that Hushai, once he found out the intentions of the king, he would tell a young lady, a young servant girl, and she would take that message to Zadok and Abiathar's two sons, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, who were actually on the outskirts of the town, right there to the south of the Zion. There was a, a place, it was a spring, it was called Enrogel. And that's where these men, they stayed there waiting for word from Hushai, who was on the inside. And so Hushai would tell Zadok and Abiathar, Abiathar would tell this young lady to send a message to their sons outside the city. Then the two sons would take that message and run and tell David, and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. So now David understands that he's got more time now. He's got plenty of time to... While, while Absalom is dreaming with stars in his eyes about this great, horrible bloodshed that he's going to unleash upon David and all those who followed him, that just gave David more time to be stronger. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And so David does. He goes to that town that it used to be Ishbosheth's uh, hometown or a place that he would call his military headquarters after the death of Saul. Ishbosheth being a son of Saul. So David now goes to this very same place, and it's a, a really wonderful place there on the Jabbok River. Again, midway between the, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. The Jabbok River runs from west to south, or, or excuse me, west to east. And this impregnable city is surrounded by rocks, and it's, it's, a, it's a great place if you want to. Uh, have as a fortress to gain an army and, have a, and come out from there. It's a great strategic location. That's why David chose it. And so that brings us to chapter 18. And let's read through chapter 18, and then we're going to go back and just look at some things. So look at with me after all of this. It says, So David numbered the people who were with him, and they set, and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And then David set out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Itai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I will also surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, and they said, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are more now more help to us in the city. And so the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood beside the gate there in Mahanaim, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Etai, saying, and notice this, this is very important, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. I, I just, uh, I'm amazed at David. You know, having the son who is vehement on coming after him, taking over his kingdom, and, and wanting to kill him. David, always this compassionate, loving, gracious man. David was not a bloodthirsty man. Now, his nephews, Joab and Abishai, they were, but David was not. He was one of these men, even when his enemy would come after him, he didn't try to kill him. He had many opportunities, if you remember when we were in 1 Samuel, he had many, uh, at least two or three opportunities to kill Saul, and he would not. I mean, he, he had the ability to take Saul out, this enemy who had been pursuing him, like a, like a lion chasing a gazelle, you know, in the Sahara. That, that's what Saul was, chasing David. And he would not touch him. And David was just that, that kind of ilk to just say, you know what, I am not going to take matters in my own hands. If I'm going to battle, I'll fight. And he was a valiant warrior. But other than that, David would not kill a man just to kill a man. He wouldn't kill a man out of jealousy and hatred, although he killed uh, Uriah. And that was his, one of his greatest mistakes, we know. But David changed. David changed after that. But notice... So David said to these three generals, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king uh, gave, all captains, gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. And so the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were overthrown before 
uh, the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day, for the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And then Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode on a mule. Now take note of this. The mule went under the thick boughs of, the, of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went onward. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab, and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. And so Joab said to the man who told him, You, you just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not rise my hand, raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atei, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life, and for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Sounds like a lot of uh, good camaraderie there, right? A lot of trust and brotherly love. <laughs> Not. <laughs> then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears or darts in his hand. Some, say, some uh, uh, translations say javelins in his hand, and he thrust him through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And, tongue, and the ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom, and struck him and killed him. And so Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people, and they took Absalom, and they cast him into a large pit in the woods, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. And then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. Uh, for he said, I have no son to keep my, my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. And why don't we uh, just stop right there and go back to the beginning, and we'll finish the chapter as we get into it. Notice back in verse 1 there, it says that David numbered the people. The idea here is that he mustered them together. He examined them. He, uh, he graded them. He, he got them ready for battle. That is the idea. So he, he numbered the people who were with him, set captains of thousands, captains of hundreds. And notice in verse 2, it, it tells us that Joab and Abishai and Atei, uh, he set three different companies under these three men, these three generals. See, David, just like any wise general or military leader, would have those whom he trusted to be over his army people who were the most loyal to him, David would have it no other way. And in fact, if you look at David's life, he was always seeking those who were most loyal to him. And any person who is a king or even in a company is always looking for people who are loyal to him. Regardless of the pieces that fall, regardless of the, uh, of the of the chatter and the gossip, regardless of all that, when everything falls apart, the men who are, and women who are going to stay with you, those are the people that you can trust. And David knew that these men, they were bloodthirsty men, they were his relatives. At least Joab and Abishai, they were brothers, and they were David's nephews. But this man, Atei, is interesting because it tells us that he came, he was a, a man of Gath, which, remember, Gath was the city of Goliath. When David killed Goliath, David uh, or Goliath came from Gath. And you recall that even when David was running from the Philistines, or running from Saul, he, he, he made himself confederate with the Philistines. Do you remember that when we were looking at that in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel? And, um, and he was confederate with Achish, the king of Gath. And David was almost going to go to war against his own countrymen, but the, saint, the, the people of uh, the, the, the lords of the Philistines says, you know what, we don't trust this guy because when we get into battle, he's going to turn around and he's going to fight against us. And, and so remember Achish sent him, he said, David, I'm sorry, I trust you, these guys don't, but you got to go. <laughs> so he tells David to go about 80 miles south down to Ziklag, which is in the northern part of Israel. And, and so that's what happened at that time. 
But this man at Etai was one of those Philistines, and there was something about David that Etai said, you know what, I can follow this man. He's not one of my people. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Jew. He's a Hebrew. But when I compare Achish and I look at David, David was the one who went out and fought all of Achish's battles, and that's what gained this trust between Achish and David. And this man, Atei, we don't know much about him other than that he was um, loyal to David. And when David left, he followed him and he went with him. He wanted to be servant to David. And you think about that, even when the enemy's troops are going and serving you, and they were saying there was probably uh, two, between two or 200 or 600 men from Gath that came with him to serve David. The enemy's army comes to serve kind of interesting, isn't it? But that's who this man Atei was. And, and again, a very common strategy to divide the armies up into three. We see Gideon doing that in Judges 7, verse 16, when he sent out three groups of 100 to go against the Midianites. Remember the pitchers and the, and the, and the lamps? He sent out three different groups, three groups of 100, a very common strategy. We see it also, Saul doing the same thing in 1 Samuel chapter 11. But notice in verse 3, back in our text, it says, But the people answered, You shall not go out, because they were afraid, again, that they would get a hold of David. And that's, they knew that that's all that they wanted, was to get David. Everyone else was valueless, but he was a high-valued target. And so, verse 4, the king said to them, Whatever seems right to you, that's what, I do, what I'll do. And so, the king commanded, verse 5, uh, those three men, Joab, Abishai, and Etai from Gath, he tells them in, in, in the hearing of all the people, he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So that means when you find him, I want him alive. Bring him back alive. And again, what an amazing character. You know, think about if somebody was hunting you down and was serious about killing you. <laughs> and they were going after you like nobody's business would you have that same heart? Of course, Absalom was David's son. That certainly helps. But to think that he you know, produced a coup, forcing David out, and then now David is on the run again. David was used to being on the run. He seems to have acquired this wonderful skill of finding out every nook and cranny of that area in Israel. And he knew that, that geography really well. And so when he took those people across the Jordan over to Mahanaim, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what his plan was. And I'm sure all the time he's leaving Jerusalem, he's thinking, I know where I'm going to go. He didn't even know, I think, when he left. But as he's going, he's thinking, I know where I'm going to go. And I'm going I'm to gain the advantage. And Hushai, giving the, the call to amass all of Israel, gave him that extra time that he needed. Valuable time for David to gather himself an army. So... He tells these three generals, you know, deal well for my sake, or deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And, and David knew by now the experience, by experience, just the bloodthirsty nature of Joab and his brother Abishai, Joab's brother. And both of these men had a lot of blood on their hands. And, uh, and David knew them very well. He grew up with them. You know, they were his nephews, his sisters, sons. And so, verse 6, the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Now, this woods of Ephraim, uh, remember how I had said, here's the Jordan River, you know, in the center of Israel, and then David and his men, they, they found this, this area, Mahanaim, right there on the Jabbok River. That's where they stayed, and the forest of Ephraim was just a little bit north of that, okay? There was a forest there, and evidently a, a pretty substantial forest, very thick, and that's exactly where David uh, strategically begins his battle and draws the enemy of Israel, his own brothers, unfortunately. He brings them into that area. And so verse 7, it says, The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. So already Absalom's army is being decimated. 
And the battle was scattered over the face of the whole countryside. And notice what it says there in verse 8. And the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. It was so thick and so difficult to navigate in those woods that um, men's swords were getting entangled and they couldn't draw well the way they would. They had trouble fighting. And David's men were well-versed, evidently, and they knew this terrain And the people who came to help David knew that terrain. And so these men were at a great disadvantage. And then notice what it says in verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode on a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree. And his head caught in the middle, caught in the terebinth tree. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule, which was under him, went on. I mean, this sounds like, like a cartoon, doesn't it? I mean, when you, when you hear about this, and, and, and especially if you know something about Absalom, because this mule, this, this, uh, which was really an offspring of a male donkey and a female horse, that's what this mule was. And so he's riding this mule, and, and the Scripture tells us in chapter 14 of this chapter, or this book that we're looking at, why, why did his head get caught in the bows of, these, of this tree? Why was it? Well, let me read something to you. This guy was fabulous. He was like, he could do like a Pantene commercial. I mean, his hair, the, the fan blowing on him and just, you know, kind of doing that in the flow and then just, you know, three pounds of hair would just go over to the side and, you know. And that was Absalom. He was a handsome guy, long, thick, blonde hair. In 2 Samuel 14, it says this about him. It says, now in Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. He was a good-looking guy. From the sole of his head to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels according to the king's standard. That's roughly between three and five pounds of hair. And he did it every year. So you can see this this guy with the bushy hair, the long locks, going in on this mule, and his hair gets all, there's branches sticking here, branches sticking in here, and he's just like, and the mule takes off, and he's suspended in the air. And so this is the, the predicament that he finds himself in. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, and Joab, in verse 10, says, why did, you told me this, why isn't he dead? Right? And so... But the man said to Joab, verse 12, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver, I would not do this. I wouldn't raise my hand against the king. For you remembered, Joab, in, in the presence of the king and all the people, he said, for my sake, do not do any harm to the son, to this, to this young man. And, and in our hearing, he said this, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. And what's interesting here is that this was the command of David in verse 5 of this chapter, deal gently for my sake for the young man Absalom. And all the people heard it. Everyone heard it. And yet Joab, do you see already, you see the character of the man? And he, he really hasn't changed from when we see him back in, you know, in the beginning of this book. He, he hasn't really changed. He's still just a bloodthirsty man, a conniver, a very intelligent man. David trusts him, but, but he's not so obedient to David, though, is he? He's obedient to a point until his own rage gets involved, and then he disregards the king's commands. He follows his own heart. Instead of listening to the king, he's like, you know what? I'm going to put this guy to death. He burned my fields earlier on, and I'm going to go after him. And he was loyal to a fault, but he also had his own motives. And that's a dangerous guy. Somebody who's loyal, but also has his own motives. And that's who Joab was. He says, Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there's nothing hid from the king, and you would have set yourself against me. I don't trust you, Joab, because even though you tell me you know, to kill the man, if I'd done it, you would be the one to tell David that I had killed him, and then David would have me killed. Anybody who goes to David and boasts of somebody's death, that they had, um, like an enemy of David's death, it doesn't turn out well for them. 
If, if you look in the history of of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll, you'll see that any time somebody has come and said, you know, your enemy's dead and I'm the one who put him to death, David said, put him to death. You know, what are you doing? I didn't ask you to go kill anybody. I didn't ask you to kill my enemies. God is able to take care of my enemies. Thank you very much. What were you doing? You have no right to take another man's life unnecessarily just because he's an enemy of mine. So Joab, he hears this from the young man, and he says, I cannot linger with you. In other words, get out of my way. And he takes three spears in his hand, and he thrusts them through Absalom's heart. And I think that was enough to kill him, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you think that'd be enough? Three spears in the heart? One would probably do, but no, not one, not two, but three. He does it three times while he's hanging there in the tree. And the ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom, and they struck and they killed him. And I, and I think of the hate and the vengeful heart that these men had uh, for each other. You know, Absalom and, and Joab and these other men who were Absalom's or Joab's armor bearer, you know, men who carried his armor, how much they hated Absalom. They mutilated this guy. Joab's three spears in the heart would have been enough. But they go even further, just the bloodlust, and it's an unfortunate thing. But what I find really interesting in all of this is that the very thing that Absalom was so proud of, his hair, he was proud of his hair, was ultimately an assistant to his death. An assistant to his death. Had he not had that big, you know, flowing... Uh, locks that he had, he probably wouldn't have been caught in the, in the, in the bows of the tree. And obviously there's a, a very good lesson here, which we all have known and have learned and will learn again, and that is pride is destructive. Pride in anything is destructive. Whatever it is that we have so much pride in, that thing is going to undo us in the end. Somewhere along the way, it's going to take care of us. And I don't mean in a positive way, right? Pride. It could be in a feature of your face. It could, be, it could be a job. It could be a wife, a spouse. It could be anything. You have so much pride in something. If your eyes aren't on Christ rather than on that thing, you are going to be in trouble because that thing that you have so much pride in is going to do you in eventually, eventually. And it seems to always come about, doesn't it? I've seen it in my own life, just you know, seeing people and, and then... Years go by, and then you hear something, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it finally caught up to him. It finally caught up to her. It finally caught up to him. The thing that he was doing that he was so proud of, and then years go by, and then you read their obit, or you hear from somebody that they had died. And the pride, the pride. What does it tell us in Proverbs 16, verse 18? Pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Go, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Absalom. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Notice a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Does that sound like the, the curriculum vitae of Absalom? Sounds like his resume. I was proud. I had a lying tongue. I had hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Certainly he did that as he planned to, um, to throw the, his father off the throne and take the throne for himself. Feet that are swift and running to evil. That's exactly what he was as, he, as the army came against Jerusalem with him and his men. A false witness who speaks lies. Yes, he spoke lies. One who sows discord among brethren. And that's exactly who we see Absalom as all those things. And his fall was coming. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. God hates a proud person. It's the very same thing that Lucifer, who used to be one of the archangels, or one of the, the angels that evidently had some, uh, some uh, ministry to the Lord in, in, in bringing perhaps the worship 
of all of creation to, to the Lord. He, he, he says in, in Ezekiel that his, Ezekiel 28, that the, 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 the pipes and the tabrets and the things, he was a music man. Satan, in his original form, Lucifer, was a music genius. And yet he fell because of his pride, because he said in his heart, I will ascend. I will do this. I will do that. And God says, you're going to be brought down to hell. And like an abominable branch, you're going to be broken to never be seen for again. And we know that that day is coming. Looking forward to that day, aren't you? I'm really looking forward to that day. Jesus tells us in Matthew, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And certainly Absalom was one of these people. He exalted himself, and he was humbled. And David who humbled himself, he is going to continue to be exalted even though he had done these despicable crimes that God forgave him for, that he never did again. He did that. And God also answered the prayer of David. Unwittingly to David, God answered his prayer. What was his prayer? You might just want to write in your Bible in the margin in this verse here, uh, chap, uh, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 31 of this same book. Remember, David. someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, and he prays, and this is what he says, O Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Did God answer that prayer? He did, didn't he? Because his counsel was thwarted by Hushai's counsel, and thus the Lord dealt with Ahithophel for his treacherous character. And now here in, this, in these two verses here in our text this evening, in verse 14 and 15, it all comes to fruition with Absalom's death by Joab. And, and Joab, excuse me, Absalom, excuse me, his sin found him out, didn't it? His sin found him out, and our sin will always find us out. In fact, you recall back in Numbers chapter 32, as the children of Israel were getting ready to cross over from the west side of the Jordan River, going east, I'm sorry, from the east side of the Jordan River, going west, that Moses, or Joshua, excuse me, tells the men, that they are all to go over together and to fight the battle, and then they'll settle the land. But remember, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they decided to stay on the right, on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River. And God told them uh, through Joshua, if, you, if that's what you want to do, actually Moses, excuse me, if that's what you want to do, you better make sure that you help your brothers get settled in the land and help go with them and fight the battles. Because if you don't, be sure that your sin will find you out. And it always does, right? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's what we get for sinning. It's a wage. It's something we receive. We receive death of some kind when we sin. And certainly Absalom is receiving his reward. And God is answering the prayer of David. Turning the Ahithophel, we'll look at that in a minute. Because in, uh, in 2 Samuel 17, it says, The Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. That is pretty serious, isn't it? To think that God would do that. Bring disaster on somebody because of their life. And, and that's why it's so important for us to never uh, play fancy or play footloose or be footloose with sin of any kind. Because we just don't know when the hammer is going to drop. And it seems that God, he's always gracious. God is always gracious. But for every person, do, is, do you find this true in your own life that God seems to, you know, you, you look at maybe what you're getting away with. And maybe you've been getting away with it for years, and then somebody else comes along, does the same thing, and they get busted the first time. And yet you've been doing the same thing for years, and God has been warning you, warning you, warning you, warning you. 
And all of a sudden, you come to the realization that that could have been me. And why wasn't it me? And that's a, that's a part of the, the counsels of God that I can't understand. Why does he allow one to, to be um, punished early and another person can get away with it for years? That's a mystery I, I don't have an answer for. But all I can say is God is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. And he gives us space to repent. And everybody's different. He knows how much time you need. And he knows when you're finally going to come to the end. And he's always waiting for you to come to the end of yourself and say, you know what, I, I'm really finished with this part of my life. I'm sick and tired of it. I've been tripping over it all my life. And here I am, you know, so-and-so years old, and I've been, you know, struggling with this thing for 20 years. <clears throat> I'm done with it. And God says, I knew this time would come. <laughs> and that's the unfair advantage that God has. And again, I don't pretend to know the counsels of God, and that, 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 that's, that belongs to him. But I also know that God knows another person, and they could get away with it for a very short period of time before they're judged somehow or brought to uh, something like Absalom. And God doesn't owe anyone an apology for what he allows and what he, what he does. He knew Absalom's heart. If there was any possibility that Absalom would repent, I'm sure that God would see to it that he had the optimal moment in his life to come to Christ. But if that moment is not there and God knows it, he's going to let him go through the punishment that he deserved. And again, that's something that only belongs to God. None of us are, have the ability to judge that, to understand that to the depth that God does. It's, it's a mystery only he knows. So Joab blew the trumpet after he had killed uh, Absalom, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom, and they cast him into a large pit in the woods, and they laid a very large heap of stones over him. And then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. This sounds very reminiscent, if you remember when Joshua, uh, back in the book of Joshua in chapter 7, when they came into the promised land for the first time, the very first city that they went against was Jericho. And you recall that they went into Jericho, they decimated it, and they gathered a lot of uh, gold and silver and things of that nature. And that gold and silver was supposed to go to the Lord. It was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. But remember Achan, he stole the, the wedge of gold and the silver and a garment, and he hid it in his tent, and it cost him his life because God was like serious about his command. He told him in advance, this is what you need to do, and everything you get from this battle, from this battle alone, I want you to consecrate all the gold and the silver for my purposes. And he did not, he didn't obey, and God judged him for it. And they stoned Achan and his whole family, stoned them to death, burned them with fire, and set a heap of stones over them very similar to what they did to Absalom. A rebellious son, Absalom was. You know, and I think about when I was young, I was a rebellious son. And I look back now and I'm like, I'm really glad that I wasn't around in this time frame in Israel under the law. Because <laughs> Deuteronomy tells us that if a man has a stubborn, this is in chapter 21 beginning in verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of, to the elders of his city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Hear and fear. And that's what happened to Absalom. Ultimately, he was stoned, even though it was post-mortem. He was stoned, a rebellious son. Verse 18, back in our text, it says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the King's Valley. The King's Valley is that valley, the Kidron Valley, which you heard me say about this. Uh, if this was the Temple Mount, 
uh, there is a valley, and there's a Kidron, the Kidron River, the River Kidron is in between it. It's no longer there today, but that they call it the Kidron Valley because of the Kidron Stream that used to be there, and then it goes up to the Mount of Olives. Well, right there in that valley is called the King's Valley, and this is where Absalom, it tells us, he says, uh, for Absalom said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance, and so he called the pillar that he had erected after his own name, and to this day it's called Absalom's Monument. Now, if you were to look at, I, I didn't I have some photos of this, but I think if I describe it, you'll understand it. In Israel, in that valley there, it looks like a little square building, and it looks like a, a chess piece. It looks like um, a, a pawn sitting on top of a square building, and they call that, and it's there today. You can see it. They call it Absalom's Monument. But they, we believe that that monument was actually uh, created or, or constructed over the original site, which is where Absalom had built this pillar. And then at some point that was torn down and then they put this other monument on top of it and that's the one that we see today. So it's still there today in Israel, you can see it. And so they call that Absalom's monument. And so it says, then Ahimaaz, and this is where we continue in the narrative here, then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run now. So all of this activity has happened and now this young man, Ahimaaz, who, remember Zadak and, and um, Abiathar back in the temple, back in Jerusalem, those two sons that he had outside of the city in Enrogal, remember? Ahimaaz and Jonathan. Well, Ahimaaz was this young man here, and he says, let me now run and take the news to the king. He knew the king very well, and I think this man just wanted to maybe ingratiate himself even more to the king. We don't really know his motive, but he really wanted to be the one to tell David, David, your, your troubles are over. The, the, the battle has been won. And, um, and so Joab turns to him and he says, you shall not take the news this day, for you do not, you shall not take the news, uh, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. And then Joab said to the Cushite, who was a, uh, a Cushite as a man who was from Ethiopia, uh, from the land of Cush, which is Ethiopia. He tells another man, he says to him, go tell the king what you have seen so the Cushite bowed himself to Joab, and he runs, um, he runs to Maenaim to tell David the news that the Israel army is defeated and Absalom is dead. And I find it interesting, too, that um, perhaps Joab was trying to spare this young man, Ahimaaz. Because remember I said before, anybody who has brought bad tidings to David... It never ends well with that messenger. I mean, certainly this Cushite or even a Hymaz, they had nothing to do in the death, per se. Somebody else did it. But um, I, I really believe in my heart that Joab was trying to protect this young man, this priest's son, just in case David was in an off mood. And, you know, he, he wanted to make sure that he preserved him. But the Cushite, the Ethiopian, was a foreigner, and he's thinking to himself, ah, I'll let him run. He, he knows everything that happened, so that's exactly what had happened. So, Verse 22, and Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So, so Joab says, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? In other words, you don't know the whole story, Ahimaaz. The Cushite, the Ethiopian, he knows the full story. You don't know the full story. So no, you're not going to go. You're not going to go. But whatever happens, he says, let me run. And so finally he said, run. You know, he, he just keeps pestering him. He keeps, it's like a water dripping on, land, on, on sandstone, just dripping, dripping. Finally, Joab's like, please just run away. Just go, please. Just do me a favor. Put on your Nikes and go. <laughs> and so he does. He takes off. And so now David, verse 24, was sitting between the two gates, and here he is in Mahanaim on the eastern side in that city that we were talking about. He's between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running, running alone. And I, I don't know about you, but I love the Bible, just being able to picture these things. When you read it, do you stop and think about it, and do you plant this scenery in your own head? I, I, I love doing that. And um, it really brings the Bible to life. 
and especially if you get to go to Israel with us. Um, we won't be going in next March, but the following March, we're going to try it again. Um, you'll, you'll, get, you, you'll get to see the land, and you'll, you'll know the geography. And it's such a wonderful uh, blessing to read these things and to kind of get an idea of where things were. And uh, it really helps to, to picture it in your mind. And so David, and the watchman went up, he saw, saw a, a man running alone, and then the watchman, verse 25, cried out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth, and he came rapidly and drew near. And then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone, and the king said, he also brings news. And so the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of a Hymaz. It looks like a Hymaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man, and he comes with good news. So a Hymaz called out and said to the king, all is well. And then he bowed down with his face to the ground before the earth, before the king, and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is the young man Absalom safe? And a Hymaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant uh, and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I do not know what it was all about. So it's very possible that this young man, he, he didn't know all the facts. And when you're sent to tell a message to a king, you better have all the facts together. So a Hymas comes, he's like, he gets there, things, good things have happened. What happened? Uh, duh. You know, he gets the deer in headlights, and David's going, uh. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom saved? Do you see what David is doing? He could care less about anything. I want to know one thing. What has happened to Absalom? He said it twice. What happened to my son? And I think David is somehow trying to, to kind of get out from underneath what God had told him that would happen as a result of his sin back in chapter 12, verse 10, that the sword would never depart. I think David, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, you know what? If I could just get Absalom safe, I can hopefully avert, at least I can have him back. And David's reeling inside because he knows that all of this has happened because of his own sin. Because he, as a father, he had, he, had, he had kind of failed. He checked out as a dad when he should have been instructing his boys, when he should have been telling them the truth. David just, he just tuned out, wallowing in his own self-pity. And I, I mean, he can't really blame the guy, but at the same time, he knew he was forgiven, but there was so much going on in his life, he just kind of like, he felt no strength left in him to bring conviction on anybody else. Because of his own sexual sin, because of his own murder, he's like, how can I tell my son Amnon, how can I call him to task for raping his sister when I'm guilty of similar things? I just don't have it in me. And he did nothing. David just continually did nothing. And so the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against him do you no harm. Be like that young man. And then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he wept, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if I only had died in your place, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. So David is just realizing the consequence. Again, there's consequence for sin, isn't there? God told him that this would happen, and it finally happens. It happens. He loses two sons, his firstborn and his third son. And David later is going to lose his fourth son, Adonijah. We'll read about that in 1 Kings. He's going to lose these sons to the sword, just as God had told him. Because of his own sin. God forgave him, but there were consequences. Right? It's so important for you to read that. Read 2 Samuel chapter 12 and 13. Or chapter 11 and chapter 12 and 13. Because it really brings to light this idea of being forgiven 
when you've confessed. And, and that is a promise that God has always made that when we confess, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But one thing that he will not do is take away the consequence for that sin. He allows that to continue. There's always a consequence. That is the reminder to us, you know what? I am really done with this because I'm living with the result of this action that I took back when I was a teenager. I'm living with the result of this divorce and this heartache. I'm living with the result of this pregnancy and this abortion, and my heart is still aching over it. And then you know what? You're going to be in a place of, even though God has forgiven you, you're going to be in this place of just thanking him. And you're going to be able to tell other people when they fall into similar places of sin and detriment, you're going to be able to speak so intimately about that topic. You're going to be able to comfort others with the comfort that you've been comforted with of God. That's the benefit of us going through trials even. Because if we don't go through trials, how are we going to minister to other people who have been through the valley, who have been through the gates of death, and, and then you know, they're wallowing in, their, in, their, in hurt and pain? How are you going to do that unless you've been there? So when, when things like this happen to you, remember that. That God can forgive, and he does. If you ask him, he, it's, it's, it's an, a non-conditional statement. If you confess it, or actually it's conditional. If you, if you ask him to forgive you, he will forgive you if you confess it. That's all we got to do is confess it. He'll forgive you, but there are consequences. David is going through these consequences. Very difficult chapter, isn't it? But now we see the, the death of Absalom. Again, a man who could have been so different, could have chosen a different path for his life. If his heart was right, he probably could have been one of David's men in his army. He could have been, uh, 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 he could have been in his cabinet, if you will and had a very wonderful job, had a wife and, and, and beautiful kids and grandkids. He could have had everything going so well for him, but he chose a different path. And it's true, isn't it, that your sin will find you out, and that's what happened. It all comes to fruition in this chapter, and, it's a, and it didn't have to be. It didn't have to be. And I think that's part of the reason why David was so racked with pain over Absalom. As he's thinking to himself, you know, because of what I did, I didn't address my son Amnon when he raped his sister. And as a result of that, my son Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He kills him. And then I do nothing. I do nothing. And I don't address him for his murdering of his son. And it's all because of me. David's thinking, I just, I, I just, I checked out, wallowing in my own sin, and, and now look at my family. And God's like, yeah, David, I told you this was going to be the result. And so whenever we sin, it's not just something we do in an isolation. It always has an effect. It always has an effect. And I've seen that in my own life, and you have too. We've all are probably living with the decisions of things that we've made, things that we did in the past, and we're living with those, the ramifications of those choices even today. Even as Christians, being forgiven by God, knowing that we're heaven-bound, knowing that if we were all to be raptured right now, we'd all go. But yet there are still things that are happening in our lives that we just wish we could just erase from the record and erase all the effects. God says, I'll erase that sin. I'll erase that. But the consequences, I'm afraid, you've got to live with that. And sometimes God in his grace can lessen those things if he chooses, but there's always a result. Always a result. And so be encouraged in spite of that <laughs> to know that we can come to the Lord and, and, and confess to him. We can come to him and confess to him. And just seek to live a life that's honoring Jesus. Don't be like an Absalom. Don't be like a Joab even. Be like a David. 
Even though he made the mistakes, the Bible calls him the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart. He has that title, by the Spirit of God, a man after my own heart. And you're saying to yourself, how can that be when he did so many horrible things? Because of his repentance and because of his great love. He was a man who had mistakes, but isn't, aren't we all in the same boat then? Aren't we all in the same place? I mean, is there anyone here who hasn't made a mistake? Hasn't done something wicked? We all have. And yet to turn away from that thing and devote yourself to God, God says, that's a guy after my own heart. Because he's messed up really bad, but you know what? He went in about face, and he's following me with all of his heart. And David was like that. And that's the heart I want. Do you want a heart like David? Not the heart of David who did all the bad things, but the heart, the, the, the fruit of that. <laughs> and then you read the Psalms and you see the wonderful fruit of that life and it just brings us to tears, doesn't it? As you read some of the Psalms, perhaps things that you can relate to in your own life. It's so wonderful. Read the Psalms. Read those Psalms of David and just, especially when you, when, when, when the, you, know, you can figure out um, through study and, and, and commentaries or whatever and you find out a Psalm that's been written while David was going through a certain part of his life and you read that and it's just so rich and you put yourself in the story you put yourself in the history and then you read the psalm over and over again and then something happens to you and then you're like oh man that psalm just gives me so much comfort because I'm no different than he is and yet God is going to raise up David in the millennial kingdom and he's going to sit and he's going to be a co-regent with Christ in Jerusalem in the millennium do you know that? Ezekiel 34 tells us David will be resurrected. We're going to see him. We're going to be seeing him in a resurrected body along with us in our resurrected body in the millennium. We're going to see him. I can't wait to go up and talk to him. <laughs> Isn't that a trip to think about? To be able to go up to these people in the millennium? To go up to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. What was it like? Wow. I kept you long enough. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, how rich it is. And Lord, just the history here. And Lord, how much we can learn from it, Lord, as we see it in its historical context. And, and Lord, just knowing what we can learn from these things in our own life right now. Lord, thank you that your word is alive. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the, the joints and the marrow and between soul and spirit, Lord. Discerning the intents of our hearts. Thank you for it, Lord. And bless us as we go out from here in Jesus' name.